We're caught up now. <laughs> now, some people claim that the first Thanksgiving was in St. Augustine, Florida, back in uh, 1565, which was a good 70 years before the one that we all celebrate. But the one we're going to be talking about is the one in 1621 with the Plymouth Colony, the one that we're most familiar with, with, you know, the big collars and the hats and the dark clothes and all of that. Now, that group that we talk about, that we call the pilgrims, they actually did not refer to themselves as pilgrims. They referred to themselves as saints or separatists. Oliver Cromwell, way back in England, was part of a movement called the Congregationalist Movement. Because by about 1000 AD, all of the power and control of the Christian church had been shuffled and reshuffled and reorganized, but basically was coming completely under the Bishop of Rome. And so any decision that you wanted to make as a little congregation out here in the wilds of England had to be run first through Rome. Any kind of thing that you wanted to do, any kind of movement you were seeing, all had to be filtered through Rome. So about 500 years after all of that power centralized, Oliver Cromwell was a little tired of the monarchy being in charge of everything and the church being in charge of everything. He staged himself a little bit of a revolt in England. And he was part of what was called the Congregationalist Movement, which was to allow each congregation to act independently and autonomously and to run its own affairs. However, good King James, got your King James Bible? That's who we're talking about. He was not real in favor of this, can you imagine? <laughs> he was not real impressed with this movement. And so he declared this group of Puritans, pilgrims, separatists, he declared them to be very, very undesirable. This was just a lot of monkey business in the kingdom and wasn't appropriate under King James' rule. And in 1607, the guy who was the Archbishop of York, his name was Tobias Matthew, raided a lot of homes, imprisoned people who were part of this separatist movement, part of this congregationalist movement. So there was a group of them who were living in Scrooby, uh, Nottinghamshire, England. Scrooby. I don't know. It, I kept wanting to say Scooby, like Scooby-Doo. I was having a hard time getting the mystery machine out of my head on that. They decided they'd had enough. They knew that they were going to be coming under more and more scrutiny as a group of people worshipping. And so they packed up, and they first started out, they went to Amsterdam, and then they went to a little town in Holland called Leiden. And this was about 1609. So they get to Leiden, and Holland allowed them freedom of religion. They were quite pleased about that and quite thankful. But there were things that were a challenge for them. Scrooby, where they had come from, Scrooby Scrooby-Doo, had originally in their lifestyles been a very agricultural lifestyle. They farmed, they had their animals, they had their fields. Leiden was actually an industrial center. So they experienced quite a change coming into Leiden, Holland in terms of the lifestyle they had always known. They went from being country folk to being city folk. And it was a difficult transition for them. And then as so often happens, they did not move to Holland for their kids to become Dutch. But their kids start becoming Dutch. They start speaking the language, they're hanging out with the other kids on the street, they're beginning to adopt Dutch customs and Dutch ways, and that had never been part of their parents' original intent. So William Brewster was the head of the leading congregation. And now for the ultimate trivia question. 
who on staff is a direct descendant of William Brewster? Dun 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 dun. I don't know why, but I would say Michael Hepworth. It's Linda Arnold. Really? Yeah. Direct descent, which I didn't know till this morning. So it's not like. William Brewster was, they actually didn't call them pastors over the separatist movement, the saints movement. Uh, they called them head elders or elder. So Elder William Brewster uh, was head over this leading congregation, this group that had left Scrooby Scrooby Doo and had gone to Holland. He was the head over that group. And Linda Arnold is actually of a direct line to him. Right. You know, it's funny because I didn't find hard numbers on how many actually went. I know how many then came out. Um, but I think it was probably, if I'm guessing, 150 maybe, 150, 200 that left this little, this little leading congregation all packed up and went together. Well, William Brewster got himself into a heap of trouble because they had been in Leiden. And they were getting used to having this religious freedom. And he published a few blistering articles about his opinion about good old King James and the way things were being done in England. Well, guess what? Holland's not all that far from England. And if you tick off the king bad enough, he can just put some people on a ship, send them over, and say, go get the guy. So he actually sends officials to Leiden to arrest William Brewster, Linda's great-granddad, and... Brewster is able to escape, but at that point, this congregation goes, you know what? We're not far enough yet from England. If we can still get in this kind of trouble and still end up with authorities coming to arrest us, we're still not far enough away to really operate in full religious freedom. So their first offer when they realize that things aren't going so well is the Dutch say, you know what? I tell you what, we've got this little colony. It's called New Netherland. You guys could go over. It's over in the New World. That's quite a ways from England. I mean, somebody would have to be really intent on coming to arrest you if they wanted to do that. But again, that would mean going back and staying within a very Dutch culture. Now, the uh, capital of New Netherland was New Amsterdam. Do you know what we call that today? It's actually Manhattan, the island of Manhattan. New York City was originally settled by the Dutch, and that was New Amsterdam. So there was a group called Merchant Adventures. And they were a British group. And they came in and said, you know what? We're trying to put a group together to go a little bit further up the coast, on the East Coast. And we could help facilitate you guys getting there. And then you'd be quite a ways from England. And you could live your life the way you want to live. And so they decided, all right, we'll do that. So a group of them decide they're going to take up this, this opportunity to do it. Not all of them went. A lot of them had settled into Holland. They had gotten as much freedom as they wanted. They were fine. But a group of them felt there was something more, something more. So after 10 years of being in Leiden, they get on a ship called the Speedwell. And this is uh, from the port at Delfhaven in Holland. And they're going to rendezvous with the Mayflower in Southampton, England. So they get on board, bunch of kids, moms and dads. They take off. They get over there. And there was a group at the Merchant Adventures, the group who was financing them going, had put together that these separatists, these pilgrims, called the strangers. Now the strangers were business people, indentured servants, probably a few rogues if I had to guess, trying to get out from under some kind of you know arrest warrant. And they were going to go to the New World to start new lives and to 
began industry to do whatever they could over in a new world with a fresh start. So when they originally left Dartmouth, there were 90 on a ship called the Mayflower, and there were 30 on a ship called the Speedwell. Well, they start having some leakage, so they have to put back into port on the Speedwell. Mayflower seems to be fine, seems to be sound. The Speedwell just keeps springing leaks. They go back into Dartmouth, get everything patched back up, take back out, get to Land's End, 200 miles away. What do you know? The Speedwell's leaking again. They put into port, they patch it up, they take off again, and then they have to circle back again and go to Plymouth, England, because what do you know? The Speedwell's leaking again. There was speculation at the time that the captain of the Speedwell really and truly and honestly did not want to go to the New World. He may have been down in the hold every other couple nights with an axe going <laughs> because it kept leaking. Well, at this point, some of them decide, you know, this doesn't seem to bode well. We've made three attempts to get out of port. We keep going back. And at that point, several people decide we're, we're offloading here in Old Plymouth. We're done. So then 102 passengers all board the Mayflower. Now, one of the misconceptions that I always had about this group that was traveling, I just kind of thought they were all pilgrims on the joy bus going to the promised land. And you know, a lot of times in our journeys, it's not that we're all pilgrims on the joy bus going to the promised land. We oftentimes are set alongside strangers. So there were 102 passengers on the Mayflower, 27 were adult pilgrims, 43 were of this stranger category, and there were 32 kids with no travel DVD players and no disposable diapers. There's a woman who has crisscrossed the country in a 15-passenger van with a bunch of kids. My heart bleeds when I read these numbers. They were originally supposed to have left end of June, early July. Those were supposed to be the best sailing times. But because that pesky speedwell kept springing leaks, they didn't take off until late August, which meant they hit rough, rough weather as they were crossing the Atlantic. I mean, we still see some of those weather patterns today. We know that hurricane season is most prevalent, you know, those times from August till about November. So they take off, and it's rough. It takes them over two months. They actually don't lose many people on the passage over, which fascinated me. I think maybe it was, isn't this honorable to those who passed, but I think it was maybe three or four on the way that went over. Which as you look at Columbus's numbers, you know, just 130 years earlier, they were running, you know, they actually did pretty well on these passages. I've always had this concept that you lost a lot of people on the passage over, but a lot of them make it, they make it. But they start trying to land where they actually have title rights to land, just up the coast a little way from this you know, New Amsterdam area, this New Netherlands area. They cannot get into shore. It, the shoals are so prevalent along this bay that where they actually think they have legal rights to land, they can't get there. So after trying and trying and trying, and now we're into December, and winter conditions are setting in, they track a little bit more north and they have to renegotiate so they can land at what we now call Plymouth, but that's where they end up landing. So in December of 1620, you've got women and kids and the sick sitting on the boat out in the bay 
Some of them have been on board now for six months without feet on firm ground. And the guys are getting in boats and they're coming in, little rowboats, and coming in every day and they're trying to construct shelters. Because on their original timeline, they were going to come in, it was going to be mild, it was going to be October, they were going to build stuff, they're going to get everybody housed and settled for the winter. And instead, they're doing the quick panic, build, lean-to kind of thing in the middle of these winter storms. That first winter, 45 of the original 102 immigrants die between December 1620 to about February, early part of March. 45 of them die. In my mind's eye, when I think about pictures of the first Thanksgiving, don't you always see like cute little women with the collars and they've got the big platters and the, okay. And the men have their cute little muskets and the kids all have the little bleached collars. Of the 18 adult women who made the original passage on the Mayflower, 13 died that first winter. One more died that spring. By the time we get to Thanksgiving, six, seven, eight months later, there are four adult women left. Four. So my scene of domestic bliss is shot. We got four exhausted gals who've been taking care of kids, other people's kids, burying the dead, trying to support the men. Making wreaths. Making wreaths, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Tying up skulls with raffia, uh -huh. plucking chin hairs. Um, <laughs> so 53 survive to celebrate that first Thanksgiving in 1621. They did have one child. They did. He was born on the Mayflower in 1620 in November when they moored. He was born on November 20th, which is significant to me because one of my children was born on November 20th. And his name was Peregrine White. And Peregrine means, in French, pilgrim. It means a journeyer, a sojourner. And we have a child named Journey, too, which is, um, that's part of the etymology of her name. Peregrine White. And his mother was one who did survive. Now, the reason I walk through all this history with you is because I think a lot of times when we come up to a season of Thanksgiving, and in my personal third grade understanding of what Thanksgiving was, perhaps, I sort of thought they got to Thanksgiving and they'd settled in this new land and they built their new houses and yeah, they'd hit some rough patches but everything was great and they'd made big buddies with all the Native Americans and they learned how to put in crops. You know, that first Thanksgiving was held in the midst of tremendous challenge and loss and impending warfare. Not only for the pilgrims, but for the Native Americans as well. You know, we have our view of Thanksgiving, but having lived in Oklahoma for 15 years, where there is a significant Native American population, I can tell you their view of Thanksgiving is quite different. By the time the pilgrims got to Plymouth in Massachusetts, many other European explorers had been through, um, from Spain, from France, from England, there had been many, many who had come through. And it's estimated that of the Indians who lived along the eastern seaboard in that area, 90% had been wiped out by smallpox and other diseases that were carried over from Europe. There were many internal battles that were going on at that time between settlers and Native Americans. And then amongst the Indians themselves, there were Indians who felt like they needed to cooperate with these Europeans. They said, look, 
change of times, change of tide. We've got to get on board and figure out ways to make this work. There were Indians who were absolutely opposed to it. They had very complex governmental structures, and there was a lot of infighting that was going on, both with the settlers and with the Indians themselves. The Indians that we talk about who helped the pilgrims, Samoset and Squanto, Massasoit, who was chief of the Wampanoag Indians, Squanto himself had been captured previously, had been taken first by Spanish monks as a slave back to Spain, and then he was then taken into parts of Europe and England and kind of showed off, you know, look what we found over in the New World, and then came back to the New World, as we call it. I'm so touched by the fact that a man who had been through so much and who had been through enslavement by these people was willing to come in and help them survive. He spoke English. He could help them communicate. He knew the ways of both the old culture they had come from and this new culture they had come into. He taught them ways of planting. He helped them negotiate peace with a lot of the Indians around them. The Wampanoag Indians um, were the ones who were in closest proximity to the pilgrims at the time. And it really, to me, is a miracle that Massasoit, their chief, was willing to allow them to stay. He could have decimated them at any point. I mean, they already had the technology. They already had access to guns and firearms. If they had not wanted the pilgrims to be there and the strangers, they could have absolutely wiped them out just like that. Well, the reason that I wanted to talk through that early Thanksgiving is because I think at times our journey to make our faith our own may require change and upheaval. Sometimes we know that we need to walk in greater freedom from our past. But it's hard to do. Jolly old England is familiar. And, you know, Holland's fine. Sometimes we want to just get to Holland but straddle because now we're close enough to England we can get back if we want to and that whole new place of faith is really scary so if we just stay in Holland we could always get back to what we knew if we needed to but to really launch out in faith into uncharted waters and to sit amongst strangers and to face coming back into port two or three times have you ever been there where you're ready to launch out in faith and your boat springs a leak and you go back to port and okay, Lord, now I'm ready. Send me. And you spring a leak. The admiration I have for the people when they put back into port the third time to say, we're going. We're going to this new place. We're going to where we will have freedom. We are willing to risk it. We're willing to stay on the boat till we get there. The other example that when I look at the little pilgrim figurines that are going to march across my world this Thanksgiving is I want to remember the kind of blessing and maturity that comes in giving Thanksgiving in the midst of great trial. They had undergone significant loss, significant illness, everything was foreign, everything was new, and yet both they and the Native Americans are willing to come together and offer thanks. We think of it almost like a big party, don't we? But the oral traditions from the time, including Native Americans who were there and passed on this tradition, and then the people who wrote about it during the time, they all said it was actually a somber and reverential experience. Not sad, not depressed, but very much a reliance 
upon the Lord. That they knew that everything was on that table had been provided through friendship, through Squanta's forgiveness, through what was part of the land. They knew they really had not brought a lot to offer. And the thanksgiving they were giving back to God was in seeing his amazing provision for them in the midst of tremendous trial. And when I see the pilgrims, particularly because Mike and I have been through a season now over the last few years of, of some moves, which I moved a lot as a kid and I swore I'd never do it again. And then I married this cute boy and, well, you know, we moved. But I think because I moved a lot as a kid, I've had such a longing for home. I want my house, and I want to paint a wall, and I want to mark my kids' hide on the doorframe. And I don't want to really have to go anywhere. I mean, I'm willing to step out in faith in other things, but don't change home. Let me have that as a central theme. And what the Lord had to really start working out on me six years ago was, I'm your home. I'm your home. Oklahoma's not your home. America's not your home. This world is not your home. You're just up, passing through. And your treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Because, you know, in their willingness to step out, they had to change their idea of home. Home became something over there, over on a distant shore. Because we're all sojourners here in this experience. We're not home yet. And seed sown in tears can bring a harvest of joy. They sowed seeds that first Thanksgiving that had to be bittersweet. They'd made it. They just hadn't made it with everybody they thought was going to come along. They'd made it, but it hadn't been shiny. They'd made it, but it had not been without stars. It had been a difficult, difficult path. But as I was researching this, I got onto the Mayflower Society's site. They have a really interesting site. There are 39 original Mayflower passengers that they can trace lineage from. There may be others that also have lineage linked back, but these are the ones they can document throughout American history. Of those 39 passengers, that they can keep family lines. There are now tens of millions of Americans who have direct, who are direct descendants to that line. Tens of millions. Do you think back in 1621, they were sitting around a table going, you know, I'm just betting y'all, I know it's been a little tough, I know it's been a little hard, but I'm just betting y'all in about 500 years, there's gonna be like tens of millions of Americans that are gonna be related to us. It's the mystery of planting seed in seasons where you may not even be able to see it sprout. Tens of millions of Americans based on the deeds of 39 people who were willing to stay on the boat and travel all the way over. You know, I see some people in the Word that exemplify this to me. It was in Jonah. And Jonah has this amazing prayer that he utters to the Lord. You know, Jonah was supposed to head to Nineveh, and he was supposed to tell the Ninevites, uh, you guys need to clean up your act, because our God's a righteous God, and he may be a little bit upset with y'all for the way you're behaving. 
He was supposed to go, and he didn't really want to go, and so what happens? He gets swallowed by a, a big fish of some sort. Now catch this. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in me forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. See, that might have been the prayer that I would have uttered once I'd been spit up. I'm out. Praise God. Song of thanksgiving him out of the fish. Jonah's wisdom. And he's a flawed guy. We know he's a flawed guy. He pouts again in two more chapters. You're like, dude. <laughs> to quote one of my sons, dude. But he has the wisdom when he's still in the fish. And the pilgrims had the wisdom when they were still in the belly of the fish to utter a cry of thanksgiving. Because that's faith. When you're in the belly of the fish and you're saying, thank you God, I'm, I'm going to look again to your holy temple. That's faith. It doesn't take much faith once you've been spit out onto dry land. It takes a lot of faith when you're in the belly. You know, Paul says that the cup that we partake of when we partake of the Lord's Supper is the cup of thanksgiving. And we know it's symbolic of the blood of Christ. That the very blood of Christ, part of the DNA of that, is thanksgiving. That somehow Jesus, through his suffering, was able to give thanks to the Lord. And then we quote this verse to each other a lot. We talk about if you need anything of the Lord, you just pray, you just petition. But there's a third component to the recipe that I think sometimes we miss. And that is this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, and thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I'm often good in a season in the belly of the fish to say, God, I need you. Hello. Can I move up to the top of the line? Here's my prayer. Here's my petition. And I forget to put in my thanksgiving. What a critical part of the recipe. So as y'all are getting out your decorations and your little pilgrims and you're thinking about big white starch collars, don't miss the humanity. And mixed in that gorgeous humanity, a gorgeous seed of faith, not just with the pilgrims, but I think with Squanto, the kind of faith he had, the kind of forgiveness he had to facilitate these people. But their willingness to give thanks, to take a pause in the middle of 
literal famine, literal illness, literal warfare, to stop and give thanks to the Lord of the harvest.